1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello. Welcome to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. I am your host Ari Barbalat. I am honored to be with my to be in dialogue with my guest today, Cassandra Lane. She is the author of We Are Bridges, a memoir published in New York by Feminist Press 2021. Cassandra is the editor of in chief of LA Parent Magazine. And if you don't mind me saying this to our listeners, as moved as I have been to read this remarkable memoir, I'm just as much, if not more, moved to be in dialogue today with the author behind it. Um, I'm here today with Cassandra Lane. Cassandra, thank you for your generosity and your time.
1: Oh, wow. I'm so privileged to be here, Ari, and to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to be in dialogue with you on this amazing platform.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Although we're discussing your autobiographical memoir today, is there anything about yourself that does not appear in the book that you can share with us so that we can know you a little better
1: yeah so you know the book it deals with some heavy topics but i'm actually i love fun i love laughing um pretty zany i love dancing my son is a lot older and this is kind of a surprise to people you know in the book i'm pregnant with him but he's actually a teenager now so i'm yes. the mom of a of a teenager <laughs> I'm dealing am yes. all of all of that it's fascinating yes. it's yes. funny he's my buddy but we also Good. have our you know moments of challenging so i'm growing in, in new ways that i never imagined i could grow um because of this mothering journey journey um yeah i mean i I spend my days writing and editing as a magazine editor and i absolutely love working with all of the writers that i get a chance to to work with um, who are freelancing for the magazine that's one of my favorite parts uh, of being at the magazine is cultivating this community of local writers and sometimes writers even outside the los angeles area um, who are bringing you know because we do travel too so i've worked with writers in dc and and other other places um, who are writing articles that are of interest to our readers. So that's what I'm doing outside of writing books.
0: Amazing. (laughs) What inspired you to write this book?
1: You know, I think it was because I was so far away from home for the first time. I grew up, I was born in Louisiana. I grew up there. I didn't leave to live until I was 30. I had just turned 30, left um with my then husband left new orleans and moved out here to los angeles which is such a huge place a big place to get lost in and i know you know la you lived here for a bit Um, and i was i was excited about being in this new place and exploring but i i also wanted to you know acknowledge my roots and, and examine how i became the person that i had become i was doing a lot of personal work therapy journaling um just looking back over some of my emotional issues and I started to, I had also just joined the MFA writing program at Antioch. And so I was look I was writing different pieces of you know essays and short stories and ultimately it drove me back to that writing drove me back to my family and my origin. Um, and so I just I think it was a psychological and emotional and spiritual drive to understand myself better and to understand, the people who raised me better.
0: What adversities did you go through during the writing process to bring this book to fruition?
1: Ah, finding enough time. I would say that's always the biggest one is finding enough time, although now I chuckle at my younger self, um, because I first started writing this in the early 2000s, before I was a mom. And so I've always worked pretty demanding jobs, you know, whether I was a newspaper reporter or a high school teacher, etc., working in marketing but I truly had more time than I thought I had because now I'm balancing all of that same you know, amount of work with also mothering. Um, and so I look back at my complaints of not having enough time back then and kind of chuckle because there was also a lot of time wasted. Um, I love the revision process. And one of the things that I can do is get too stuck And rewriting and mulling over, you know, sentences and paragraphs. Um, And so I know that's also another reason why it can take me a long time to work on a piece.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I I absolutely (laughs) empathize uh, with what the writing process is like. It's so much easier to start a book than to end one.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: What is the significance of the image on the title page of your book? How does it bring to life the title, We Are Bridges?
1: Mm, I love the, what the art- artist did with that, that image. So she read the book and also asked me to send her any images that I thought represented the book. So I probably sent her, I don't know, 50 different um, photos, photos capturing you know, my current life with my family, as well as um, my ancestors. I had one photo of my great grandma, Mary, um, photos that I had taken when I visited Mississippi in 2018, the town where uh, part of the setting is. I had photos that um, my ex-husband took of me while we were visiting a plantation and saw some, you know, slave quarters, and she looked at all of that and used it to influence her drawings. And so the woman, there are three, three images of women on, on the cover. There's the one big photo that actually is almost um, an exact representation of one of the photographs that Rick Francis, my ex-husband, who's a beautiful photojournalist, took of me when we were on the plantation. Um, and I had looked inside you know these i don't know if you've ever been on a plantation and seen these these quarters um where the enslaved people lived but it was you know me, the plantation house was still in pristine condition beautiful and there were tourists from all over the world looking and my my husband and i broke off from the main tour and went to these uh, slave quarters located at the back of the property and they were just very you know old and rotted and and small. And I remember looking in, um, and just the, the, the sense of dread and sorrow that I felt was so heavy and wondering what these people went through. And he captured me looking down as I was reflecting on, you know, what happened to these people. And he took a photo and that's the image that you see on, she drew, she drew that image from that photo, um, of this woman reflecting on the past um, and then there's a, a photo of an of an elderly woman who just seems so wise to me she could be influenced by either my great-grandmother my grandmother other uh, women just that tradition of the elder black woman in our culture and what she symbolizes in terms of strength and love and care um, and then there's an, another a smaller image of a contemporary woman hiking uh, with a stick. And that's also influenced by a photograph that Rick took where we were, we had moved to LA and we're in uh, visiting Joshua Tree. And I was, moving to LA was certainly such a journey for me internally, not just externally. Um, and I loved, I love and continued to love hiking. Um, and it was, a, even though he was with me, we were kind of doing our own thing and, I was pretty far ahead of him, and he took that that photo. Um, so I think I think all together, you know, it's just representing those different phases of the story: the past to the distant past, um, my kind of young adult self trying to figure things out, and then later, um, really going on a journey—an intentional and purposeful journey to understand what i what I'm carrying. Um, and what I wanna keep and what I wanna let go. And a lot of the other images you'll see are just symbols that symbolize the South. There's a big pot of something cooking that makes me think of gumbo. Um, There's figs, there's the old shack um, that makes me think of of those people's homes. Uh,
0: what, What did figs symbolize? to you, you have a passage in your book where you described your craving for figs. (laughs) What do do figs mean to you? What have figs meant for you?
1: Oh my gosh. I just remember when I was pregnant too, really craving figs. Um, They were such a, my grandmother, um, we lived with my grandmother and grandfather after my mother divorced my father. And she had this orchard of fig trees in her backyard. And I'm the oldest of five kids, but I was just such a loner and I would take one of my grandmother's quilts and go out and sit and just lie out under those fig trees. So they've symbolized for me just safety and the trees themselves, safety, comfort. I love the leaves um, of the fig tree. I loved, you know, watch, waiting for them to ripen um, and how sweet and full of sugar they were. They're a strange kind of strange looking fruit. We had plum trees and other fruit trees too. Uh, So, not all kids like figs, but I I did. I I enjoyed the taste. We also would would, um, pick them so that my grandmother could cook and can them for fig preserves, which is a very, you know, syrupy sweet. Taste that she and she, and kind of chewy and sticky, and we would have them with her hot, just piping hot, beautifully uh, done, buttered biscuits. Um, so sounds they just, amazing. They, sounds
0: delicious.
1: <laughs> making myself hungry. <laughs> so they just symbolize the South, the the soil, my grandmother's cooking. Um, Richness, you know, we took those things for granted. They were free on her tree. And now you go to a store my city in Los Angeles, you rarely see them. And when you do, they're like $6 for a little vat of figs. Um, so I think just realizing the riches that even though I grew up pretty, very poor, realizing the riches that we had, um, that even though I'm doing better financially now are absent. In my life now, my son doesn't get to grow up um, with the riches of the land and, you know, our, our elders, um, he's, he's separate from all of that and I can see, I can see the the impact of that absence. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: One quote uh, that I found quite striking in your book is the following. Memory is a woman subtle haunting devastating right even when she is wrong what do you mean by that and Mm. what can we appreciate from that proverb from that aphorism
1: Mm. you know that just came to me I think certainly I was thinking peripherally about my great-grandmother Mary um, because she had the knowledge of what happened to her love, Bert Bridges, my great-grandfather who was lynched. Um, and we didn't have that information, but she didn't want to talk about it. It was too painful. That was something that had happened decades ago. She had remarried. Um, and she, with that second husband had, you know, raised the son that she didn't get to raise with, with Bert Bridges. Um, and I felt such a I felt you know, sad when I started trying to tell this story that she had been long gone and it, we didn't have records. We didn't have you know, di- journal entries from her or letters. Um, so I was dealing with a lot of frustration because of that lack. And um, at some point I had to just accept it. I had to accept that we knew the little pieces that we knew because at least she gave us that. She could have not given us a name at all. But eventually, she did say that his name was Bert Bridges, um, that he was a beautiful, fine man, that she loved him, and she was still, to, you know, she would say those little pieces even into her nineties. My mother said that, in in the nursing home, um, those that's one of the last conversations that she had with her, that she, you know, missed her Bert, um, and then she would cry and shut down and say, "I don't want to talk about him anymore." Um, so you can't force you can't force people to talk about what they don't want to talk about um and you just have even though you need to feel that you might need to know all the details um i think writing that passage i was just coming to some a place of acceptance um and my grandmother just became kind of the embodiment of this woman who had all of this ancestral knowledge but wasn't willing to share it and and yet she was haunted by ghosts she would see i would see her you know, shooing away ghosts. Um, So I was just interested in that, um, in secrets and what we feel comfortable sharing, what we don't feel comfortable sharing, and how even if we bury something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it goes away and that we won't be haunted by it.
0: In light of what you've alluded to about your grandmother's relationship with ghosts, um, I'm actually struck by some of the passages in your book uh, about ghosts. Um, for example, you write, unlike Grandma Mary, I'm not sure that disembodied can come back as ghosts, but I do know the past is a ghost. I know that what the captors and lynchers, lynchers gave us were ghost stories, the omission of records, the uncounting, the three-fifths or less of everything. They wanted us to be ghosts here, but not here. Now they call us delusional. A better diagnosis is that we are deluded. And yet elsewhere, you state, Grandma Mary believed in ghosts. She was always telling of some sighting, a headless man in a powder blue suit with a hand stretching forth its fingers. Was it Bert paying her her visits? Or was it his murderers coming to plead with her? How does your attitude towards ghosts compare and contrast with your grandmother's attitude towards ghosts? And what can we learn from your interaction with the past as a ghost vis-a-vis your grandmother's relationship with disembodied ghosts?
1: Mm, Really deep question. Wonderful question. I was recently on a podcast about, about ghosts called, Are You There Ghosts? It's Mm. me, Chiwan. Um, and, and I was telling him that I, I haven't had the experience of seeing ghosts and spirits, but because I grew up in, with family who, who have and who talked about it as though, you know, it was you're talking about going to get a loaf of bread from the store. It was just a part of the conversation. Um, it didn't seem strange. My mother has had experiences. Uh, my grandmother, my great-grandmother, my, my youngest sister, my, uh, some of my uncles, Um, and so I guess my relationship to it is that, no, I haven't had that personal experience. I kind of feel like I live on another side of that, a more practical side, but I do believe them. (laughs) I believe people when they say that they've seen X, Y, Z. Um, and I also, you know, I guess my experiences happen when I'm asleep. I do dream about ancestors, um, when I'm asleep and I'm able to, to write that. And sometimes that weaves itself into my writing. Um, and I, I, I feel for me that the dream world is my gateway to kind of go in and out of those, those supernatural worlds and the, um, the practical, real, what we call the real world. Um, and I just, I, I, I think, you know, because those are people that I love and that I believe, that I try to handle their stories with tenderness. um, And that's been my relationship to it.
0: And
1: I'm sorry. And then in terms of the past, um, you know, when it comes to we know that these people existed because we're here, but there is no, there are no records, um, you know, of my of my great grandfather. Um, There's no birth certificate, no death certificate. And so in that way, that actually plays with my mind (laughs) more than than a a story about uh, seeing a spirit or a ghost because it's like, wow, I know that. That wasn't that long ago. And some people's existences were recorded. Beautiful music was being made. Books were being written. How are these people denied this very basic form of humanity um, an acknowledgement. And in that way, I'm haunted by that lack of humanity.
0: One of the omnipresent themes in your book is that of failed relationships. Um, for example, you write four years after Marcus was born, Marcus will be your your second husband. My mother married my father in 1970, delivering me a year later. And Dina, a year Your sister a year and a half after my birth. That marriage wrecked by my father's uh, abuse ended after seven years, and I watched my mother broken by one relationship after another, bringing three more children into the world. Somehow, romance and childbearing got all tangled up in my head, and I decided I would take the romance but not the baggage. The way I figured it was that if a man messed up on me, I could leave free and clear. I didn't realize that the same tendency for messing up was lying dormant inside of me. Looking back, if you could have a conversation with your younger self, the self that appears in your narratives, is there anything you could have done differently to be prepared for a serious relationship? In light of your mother's experiences and your father's behavior if you knew then what you knew now what would you say to the version of yourself that observed the dynamics between your mother and father before having started a relationship of your own
1: Mm. yes to wait (laughs) Mm -hmm. for for sure i um yeah i just wish that i had Known that I needed therapy, you know, even sooner. I think I saw my first therapist when I was about twenty-eight, um, but I wish that it's that 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 those were tools that I would have had as a child, as a teenager, um, as a college uh, student trying to, you know, pursue her studies, but also these romance, um, this romance, um, which I think in so many ways were blockages and. I just didn't need to spend that time uh, worried about relationships when I should have just been focused on my own self growth, um, my studies uh, and healing. So I just, that's what I would say is that, you know, keep writing, keep journaling, but also seek help outside yourself, outside your friends, outside, you know, men, um, and and talk to professionals talk to find a trusted professional to talk to at some point I realized you know 20 and 27 28 and it was a very very um it was it was wonderful to be able to to hear myself talking about what I was feeling and what I was going through and to hear this older wiser professional you know listening and giving me feedback. Um, I just wish, uh, that's what I would wish for myself is that I could have gotten into therapy sooner and that I wasn't so eager to be accepted by men. Yeah.
0: In light of the stories you relate of problematic relationships in your book, what lessons from your experience would you convey to young girls and those not yet in a romantic relationship about what to look for and what to avoid in a male partner? What mm-hmm. virtues should a young female possess before entering into a serious relationship? What signs should somebody look for that a man is ripe to be a partner and a husband in light of what you went through and in light of what you look back on in your narrative, in your book?
1: Mm. You know, I think about some of my friends, even that I have today and friends that I've had over the years. Um, and I can see the difference in the ones who, there's just something very palpable about a woman who is so self-assured um, and many of the women who, fr- women friends who I uh, look at in that way. And I admire them so much you know, when I I learn about who they were as children, who they were as teenagers, what they were doing, um, I'm so just enamored and so inspired that these are are women who as girls were also self-assured and who had, uh, in many cases, both parents, you know, feeding into them and and seeding into into their futures and into their confidence. so I would just, and, I, and I've, I've worked as a teacher and I still have lots of former students who reach out to me. Um, and I'm just always encouraging them to choose themselves, to bet on themselves, um, to, reminding them that they are enough. Um, and again, I still, I still love romance and I think that romantic relationships are, 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 can be beautiful but first to realize that you can have that romantic relationship with yourself. Um, I'm married now for the second time, but I'm, I, I still, I have really embraced the idea of romancing myself, treating myself. I love to go out, you know, to eat alone. I love to, to go on trips, uh, on solo trips and solo dates. Um, and so I just, that's something that it took me a time, you know, some time to kind of get to. But I hope that, um, and I see that this in a lot of young women who are choosing themselves first and and getting to know themselves and enjoying their girlfriend girlfriend time. Um, So I guess, and I'm not the first to say this, but it's so important to choose yourself um, and to choose you know partners who also are are choosing themselves. I mean, none of us are perfect. We all have some sort of baggage. So it's not about oh it's you know, this guy has to be perfect. He has to have done all of his healing. It's not about that. But choosing partners who are not afraid of going deep, who are not afraid of therapy, um, I think that's a huge red flag. If it's a partner, if it's a potential partner who's like against therapy or against any sort of self-reflection, run. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so definitely choosing. And and I'm raised, we're raising a son who, you know, he's been in therapy now for a couple of years. And that's a relationship that he absolutely cherishes. Um, and so it's it's taken away the stigma. I remember when we first took him to his first appointment, he was like, what's going on? There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not sad. And I said, it's not about that. Um, but it is about looking at this, this person as a partner to help you through some of the things that you're, and it was, you know, not major things, but he was dealing with some some issues with peers um, and just some self confidence issues. Um, and so I'm glad that we've got him early in terms of destigmatizing um, therapy, especially as a, as a young man and as a young Black man. Um, embrace help. We all need help. So definitely choose partners who, are, who realize that they need help. Um, and who would be willing to, to go on those, you know, healing journeys with you.
0: Thank you for sharing that.
1: <laughs> You're welcome.
0: In regard to your second husband, Marcus, um, you write about him as follows, page 128. When I think about the childhoods Marcus and I had, as well as our early adult lives, I see two people swimming upstream in a river of stereotypes, Willing the loud rush of our our proclaimed love for each other to drown out the improbability of our survival to outsiders and even somewhere just underneath the top layers of desire and optimism within us burned the the whispered question, how on earth will this relationship work? How how did your relationship with Marcus work? What (laughs) kinds of dates and get togethers did you guys do together? what role did your respective pasts play in the relationship between you to unfold?
1: Wow, yeah, loaded question. <laughs> We've had some, some deep, deep, you know, valley moments, that's for sure. I think the reason why we are still together is that we, and I, I have to credit him to this, uh, with this, is that, um, you know, even after a big blow up, are just, we're just, we're we're very different. I mean, we have things in common, but we're also very different. Um, But somehow we come back around and there's always communication. Um, There's always, you know, kind of, we we really talk, we talk very openly about what we've been through in our childhoods, in our teenagehood, young adulthood, and in our first marriages. Um, he has two adult sons from his first marriage. Um, so there's just a lot of talk about healing. There were just, there was a lot of unhealed, um, and continues to be in some cases unhealed, you know, trauma and pain, um, and, you know, he's a very funny guy, so that balances it out. We love, we both love movies. We both love storytelling. Um, so we make sure that we do dates, we do trips. Um, we love raising, you know, our son together. Um, and all of that kind of balances out, you know, the, the holes that we see in our own emotional bodies. And uh, we're able to talk about you know what those what those issues are. So I understand his past and that's what I was trying to get to in that passage, you know, and we've been together now for 15 years, but I understand his past, his past and how it's influenced him and and vice versa and we both have a deep desire and hunger to grow. Um, you know, he's on his spiritual path, I'm on mine. We share things with each other, different insights. So I think it's that's that's the that's the those are the ingredients one having fun laughing a lot but then also just coming when there is a disagreement coming back around to really talk it out um and then acknowledging and um just just really appreciating each other's individual spiritual work and path
0: thank you you described your experiences living in Glendale, California and your relationship with one particular Armenian lady. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Who was she? Why was she significant to you? What did you learn about the Armenian genocide during your time living in Glendale that you didn't know before? And how did you relate to the genocide when you first learned about it and came to terms with it?
1: Yeah, so I, um, we were in an apartment that um, was the only apartment building on that street, most of the other ones, or maybe there were a couple other ones, mm-hmm. but, but mostly what I remember are are the houses. Um, and it was definitely mostly elderly Armenian people except for in my apartment building where there were several artists, um, people in television, playwrights, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I've always loved hanging around my elders. Uh, so even though a lot of, most of them didn't speak English, um, I, and I didn't speak their language. I just, I enjoyed being in their presence. I would go across to the park, across the street and just sit there um, and write while they, you know, talked or read newspapers. Um, they were curious about me. Um, I would hear, I would smell, you know, hear them tinkering around in their kitchens and then inevitably smell the spices of their cooking. Um, And at some point they started reaching, a couple of the women started reaching out to me and um, we didn't even, we couldn't even, you know, talk really. But there was something they would share food with me or some rose tea. What was it? I think rose tea water. Um, And There was, because Glendale has such a huge Armenian uh, population, I remember one day seeing a van with, um, in memory of of the Armenian genocide, and that was my first time here, and this was around 2001, 2002, Uh, that was the first time it was really brought to my consciousness, it's not something that I had studied, or, or in Louisiana, um, and so I went after I saw that ban and did some research. I think it was a website. I did some, um, some searching on the internet and was just wowed by that and, and very much wowed by um, the time the Turkish government's you know, denial um, and was able to relate that to our history uh, as African-Americans here in this country and the lack of acknowledgement and, and apologies about um, not only slavery, but, but Jim Crow and lynchings as well. Um, so I just felt a, a connection to them.
0: I couldn't agree more about mm-hmm. the parallel. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One quotation that I found rather moving was where you muse upon the importance of loyalty. You write, I love men, but I had seen my mother and other women broken two times by men they loved while a part of me fought against those narratives and held out hope and belief that true love and true fidelity between a Black man and Black woman were possible. Yes, like in my mother's romance novels, but with our own twist, I still had something to prove. I've, and you want to say, I've wanted loyalty, but what is loyalty to me? I'm willing to love Black men as long as hard as they love me, for as longer, as short as that fuse burns, but when, that, when it goes out, I have no clue how to light it back. What is loyalty to you? How has your understanding of loyalty evolved? Has it evolved further since you've completed the book? Has loyalty meant different things to you at different stages of your life? How does your understanding of loyalty differ from others?
1: Mm, yeah, great question. I think loyalty to me now is really being loyal to the truest essence of who you are. And I think if you're operating from that place of integrity, of self-integrity, of self-understanding and self-love, that it can't help but tumble over into your relationships. Um, And certainly at different parts of my life, I, I was not operating from that place. I was operating from a place of lack of looking outside of myself, um, for validation and, um, you know, ended up in situations that I regret. I don't still have the same shame that I had part of writing this book kind of, kind of worked on that. Um, but there certainly is regret things that I just would do differently. Um, and so, yeah, I just think, I think it just has to come from a place inside a place of of trusting your 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 inner voice trusting yourself um, you know this book I, I had hoped that it would be a gift um, not just to me and my you know my child but also to the extended family um, and and to readers whether strange strangers as well um, but unfortunately not, while some family members have truly embraced the book and talked about how it's moved them so much. There are a few family members who are very upset that um, there are a couple of sentences that refer to the fact that there was a history of family incest. Um, So there are some family members who, you know, are furious with me to mind. They haven't called me directly, but I've heard about it. Um, And so in that in that way they see me as being disloyal, the fact that I even mentioned it, even though there are no names and it's kind of generic. from their perspective, that was, you never air any sort of negative family, you know, business. Um, And so there's a question of, you know, respect and loyalty that's been brought up by that. And I've had to really, uh, you know, the book's been out now for about eight months. And those are questions that I'm still reflecting on, journaling about. Um, I know that the the reason why I wrote that was because I was looking at patterns of trauma and abuse, not just in society, but, within, but how that turns back on ourselves and within our families. Uh, and that I was, I remember being very careful and intentionally being pretty generic because it wasn't just one uncle, there were a few. Um, so I don't know that I would do it differently because even though these family members feel that I was disloyal, ultimately the books, my attempts with the book is to be loyal to, you know, the premise. And the premise was, what's the linkage between all of these seemingly disparate, you know, experiences and how can we look at these patterns of trauma and brokenness and heal?
0: In your words, you have a quotation where you write, Perhaps my obsession with Bert Bridges, your, your grandfather, is really just a search for a father. I want a father who is good and great and alive. I want a love that is good and great and alive. Thinking hypothetically and counterfactually, if Bert Bridges were indeed your father, how might you have grown up and developed differently? If Bert Bridges were not lynched, can you speculate? on how your personal life might have been lived differently than it actually was.
1: Mm. So in my imagination, and again, this is just based on little, the little tidbits that grandma Mary would give us. Um, She would smile when she talked about those, you know, just for those few seconds or minutes about him Um, in my imagination, he gets to still be, you know, beautiful and strong and proud and, um, she said that the white men in that town felt uh, threatened by him and thought that he was too uppity. Uh, and that's unfortunately a word that's, that was thrown at a, lot of, at a lot of Blacks in this country who dared to lift their chin instead of hanging it, who dared to have dreams or to go to school or, you know, open a business. Um, uppity or were were words that were thrown at us. Um, So I just I feel so proud of whatever that spirit was in him that they felt threatened by that spirit of, um, you know, loving himself, despite what their uh, what what this country had told us about ourselves, of being proud. Um, And I just I imagine that he did have these dreams of entrepreneurship and of expanding beyond his little town um, of helping others. Um, I can imagine him being a wonderful dad to my grandfather, whom I loved so much, my mother's father. And, you know, if he had had a dad who loved him and modeled for him, you know, healthy masculinity, healthy manhood, instead of the stepfather that he ended up with, who beat him mercilessly, who, who hated him, um, perhaps he wouldn't have repeated, you know, patterns of, of abuse. He was abusive to, my grandmother um, and his children saw that, and some of them repeated those patterns. So I just feel like, you know, if if he hadn't gone through all of that pain and trauma, and then the loss, I would hear him in his eighties crying about how he never got to meet his his father because they lynched him. And I didn't understand, you know, why this old man was crying about the past. But as an adult, I did. As an adult who, you know, still had pain over uh, my neglectful father i understood um, so bert bridges i don't think bert you know based on grandma mary's few little words about him that he would have you know traumatized my grandfather that he would have abandoned him and i think that would have proven to be in a different trajectory for the family
0: in your acknowledgments at the end of the book you write thanks to god for breath for beauty for all the flesh and blood humans who tolerated me as I pieced the story together over the years, Mm -hmm. dreaming and fretting and sequestering myself away. How did God help you through this writing process? What aspects of your life story and family's history do you feel grateful to God for his providence over? Did you ever go through periods of time where you questioned God or faith amid the deep suffering depicted in your book?
1: Wow, yes, very powerful, (laughs) very powerful questions. I'm going to try to to answer them all. Let me know if I don't. Sure. Um, So, yes, I I, I started stealing. I won't even say stealing. I started carving out time to really finish the book Um, seriously in 2017, around 2017. Um, again, I was working full time at that point, I was working at the Dodgers as a community relations manager of um, the baseball team here. And um, I was a mother, I was, I'm a wife. Um, so I started getting, setting my clock to get up at 4 a.m., 4.30 a.m., when it was still dark and everybody was quiet, the neighborhood was still quiet. And I would go into my writing room, light candles, incense um and start with prayer start with meditation um yeah I just felt like you know I needed I was writing about some really tough uh subject matter and that I needed God's help I, I I wanted to make sure I was trying to see am I doing this right am I writing this right help me see you know the dots connect the dots So there was there was a lot of there was a lot of prayer and a lot of reliance on just that spiritual presence. Um, There were moments, and there you know there have been moments in my life where I I I feel uh, apart from God and angry and hurt, um, so baffled by how we continue as people to to hurt each other um, by racism. Um, and in all forms of di- discrimination. Um, you know, when someone who is, has a very full life or who, who's struggling, who, whose life might not seem like, like it's successful, but why do we have so many people who are sh- sleeping on our streets? It's, which is increased here in Los Angeles. Um, so there's a lot. Uh, I have faith, but that faith is often tested because I'm just, like so many of us, overwhelmed by the pain, um, even if it's not just our own pain, but just the pain in the world. Um, so sometimes when I get down and pray, it's, I don't even have the words. It's just a feeling of surrendering and trying to listen and just saying help. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome.
0: Um, one thing you write that was noteworthy, Is the, you write about the promise you made to Marcus, your husband, I will never scream at our child, but my mother was Mm. a yeller and I could feel her frustration rising on my tongue as I shifted in my seat away from the annoying sounds. I made a new promise. At least I will never spank my child to be safe. I added, at least I will not whip my child. Like I was whipped with plum tree switches. Have you fulfilled this aspiration to parent differently than how you were parented in relation to your son Solomon? Have you had any reflections on what your parents might say to you about the ways that you parent today?
1: <laughs> this is great. We don't whip or spank our our, our son, um, but definitely I failed at the yelling part. <laughs> okay. what I do, what I do enjoy, though, in fact, I don't know, maybe yesterday or the day before he said, why are you yelling? Um, So, yes, parenting can be very hard and very frustrating. And now, you know, I'm in that period of, of parenting an adolescent who's finding his way and finding his voice and pushing back on us and so forgetful of whatever we just asked him to do um and I have a, my you know I can be very stressed just handling all of my deadlines and sometimes I just want him to please just do one thing to help <laughs> and yeah. so I think it was something that I had asked him to um his dad had asked him to do the dishes and um I was hoping that he would finish a project for school that he was doing and he wasn't doing either one. He was just like, so I did yell. And so he said, why are you yelling? Um, So I I feel like a failure when I do yell because my preference is to just be, stay calm and model, you know, be this model of, you know, even if it's a little bit stern of calm and reason. Um, But what I do appreciate is that he does feel safe enough with us to call us on our parenting, you know, um, slips. Um, He feels confident to challenge us. He feels confident to ask questions. Um, So that's something that I didn't necessarily feel as a kid and as a teenager. Um, So I'm, I'm, I'm proud that Marcus and I have cultivated that kind of you know, a a household where he's the only kid in the home right now. And uh, he's very comfortable with adults and he loves our friends. He thinks they're super cool because a lot of them are artists and writers. And he, I don't know, he just has language that that I didn't have in terms of expressing himself and expressing his emotions. Um, Even if it's to say, you made me feel, you hurt me when you said it that way, or you hurt me um when you ignored me um, and it's just it, it just makes you i don't know it's just humbling and it, it lets you know that well i still have a lot of work to do and he and i will sometimes joke i'll you know he <laughs> he's seen movies and read books and he knows you know the sort of stereotypical idea of the south and especially like the southern black family and um the belts and the switches and and I've told I've been honest with him. Yes, I mean no, we went through that. Like the way that you talk to us, that would have been seen as talking back and being disrespectful. Even I don't he's not disrespectful, but just you know, voicing an opinion. I said, So those are things that I've had to grow from. But sometimes we'll joke, you know, when he's really pushing my buttons, I'll all say, You're gonna bring out that Southern black mama. <laughs> you do not
0: want Wow!
1: because you know you know you have certain moments where wow that really tested me and wow I can feel bubbling up within me like my ancestors are my mother and And so it's just but the awareness is what's key and he and I have talked about those things um and we're able to laugh about them and we're just trying to grow together
0: thank you for sharing that (laughs) you're welcome why did why did you and Marcus choose the, the name Solomon for your child? Was he named after a particular family member or did you choose the name after the biblical Solomon?
1: You know, we thought we were having a girl. So we had first chosen Carmen. Carmen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we both just loved the way it sounded. I don't know, see all the women in his life, um, important women in his life, uh, their names begin with C, his mother. His um, grandmother, his great grandmother, his ex wife, my name. Um, and so we were looking for C names and we both just loved the name Carmen. When we discovered that we were having a son, um, we finally started talking about boy names. And I, I think I said first, I've always loved the name Solomon. Um, it sounds so strong. I love, I just love how smooth it is. And yes, the biblical figure as well, in terms of, um, you know his wisdom and sense of justice, but then I went and looked at the etymology of the name and saw that it really means people think it's of strength, but it really means peace. Yes. Um, and so I, I think that symbolized you know the, maybe the peace that I was looking for in my life. Um, and Marcus said, I've always loved that name too. And when he was a kid, he said that he, if he had a child, he might one day name a son he might one day name him Solomon. And so that was just affirmation that that's the name we were going to, I don't even know if we discussed any other names. That, was, that just became the only name.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. What is what is the significance of the journal entries that you record in the book to your unborn baby Solomon?
1: You know, that came up last year during the the final revisions. Um, and it was based on, those weren't in there uh, until probably just a few months before I turned them in. It was, I I went back to those journals based on some questions, some editorial notes that one of my editors had in the manuscript. Um, And I don't remember exactly what the questions were, but it was something that made me, that stirred me to go back to these journals because I keep, I've kept tons of journals over the years. I said, let me see if I can find the journals where I was journaling during pregnancy and um, so that was my response to an edit some some editorial questions about I think what I was going through, you know, during the pregnancy. And instead of trying to write, kind of write it into the narrative, I decided to just use verbatim what I had written at that time in those, in that final section of the book. And the editors, they they wanted, they I tried it and they said, yes, let's keep this. We love this. Um, uh, that, that's
0: how it happened. <laughs> you describe your experience with medical trauma when you describe your experience suffering from pruritic urticarial papules and plaques of pregnancy, PU, PPP. How long did this last? How did you find the words... To remember the precise feeling you felt when you just dis- when you experienced this, this disease, um, the, the quotation that really struck me was as follows: It started at my navel and spread up my belly, my chest, and then over my shoulders, my back. The itch felt like a thousand stinging ants crawling just underneath the dermis. What was your experience of medical trauma like? How did it transform you? And how did you find the words to describe it so acutely years hence during the process of writing the book?
1: Yeah, that was such a, and you know, in, in comparison to so many women, um, what they go through with pregnancy, it wasn't an emergency, so, um, but it was very vivid. I will never forget it. Um, it was very uncomfortable. I, I couldn't sleep. Um I'd never had a skin condition like that um but I think as I was trying to as I was remembering it first of all I I would never forget it (laughs) but as I was trying to find language for it um the ants part came in because I actually was stung by a bunch of ants once when I was a kid I uh was I'm very nearsighted and I didn't have on my glasses. I had on a dress. I was playing and I sat down right on a big bed of ants <laughs> and it was horrible. And I remember running into the house. My mother was working, my grandmother was there and I was just screaming. She didn't know if there was a fire. I <laughs> was just holding my bottom. And um, so that was some of that allowed me to bring in some of the description because I remember that burning, but also itching sensation. Um, since, since the pregnancy, since delivery, um, it, it went away probably the doctor had said that it's very rare, only 1% of pregnant women get it and only pregnant women get it and only pregnant women who are carrying male fetuses. Um, So it seemed to have triggered something in me though, because I have had some skin conditions that have flared up in the years since that are not as intense, but pretty close. Um, So unfortunately, and, and and they go into remission. Um, But because I've had some more recent um, instances, I think I was also able to, you know, find the language between that childhood experience of the ants and the actual pregnancy, the pup is what they call it for short, and then some of the the skin issues that I continue to deal with that were never there. I think pregnancy does that with some women where it will dredge up something that was uh, dormant in you. Mm -hmm.
0: I was struck by the description that you convey in the book of your grandmother's recipeless cooking mm-hmm. um women in your grandmother's generation you write didn't record or follow recipes they they threw food together and that's how they taught us girls so that learning to cook was mostly through silent watchfulness through through osmosis and self trust some call it magic and black southern women Take pride in the aura of mystery encircling their kitchens and owning something that they pulled from deep within themselves and perfected it until it brought a smile to their own lips. They take place. They take. They take pride in the talent, creativity, and just plain scraping up of food and spice that is born out of a need, not only to feed, but also to connect us to our origins, to nurture, to tell a story. Can you unpack that insight? Mm-hmm for us, Um, Mm -hmm. how did your grandmother's cooking embody the embodied knowledge inherent in culinary arts that you're alluding to? Are there any recipes that you recall or dishes that you recall as particularly delicious? For example, the the tea cakes, and can you describe them to us? how did, how did your grandmother's cooking influence the way you cook today in your own kitchen?
1: Mm, Yeah, that's, that's my, some of my favorite among my favorite memories. Um, So I'll start with grandma Mary's tea cakes, um, which sadly none of us can recreate because we didn't have the recipe. My mother regrets to this day. She said the day before grandma Mary fell and broke her hip, which is what caused her to go into the hospital and then the nursing home. And she never came back home after that. But the day before that, that accident, my mother had begged her, you know, Grandma Mary, you've got to teach me how to make their tea cakes. And she said, babe, I'm going to tell you tomorrow, we're going to work on it tomorrow. And tomorrow was the day that she fell and broke her hip. So that's a a source of pain, but it's also, you know, such a wonderful um, and sacred memory because we all just can remember, um, my mother, my sister, Dina and I can remember the smell of her her tea cakes that she made until until she went into the hospital and nursing home. Um, They were just, they were similar. They were like Southern biscuits. Um, They were fluffy, but they were, and they were light inside. Um, it was definitely the taste of nutmeg and allspice and sugar. And she would dust a little bit of um, flour on top of them, butter, and they just melted in the mouth. <laughs> I thought, wow. The banana, I said. wow. <laughs> and I've looked, you know, certain over the years, I've been to different bakeries and places that call their, um, pastries, tea cakes, and, I'm, and there's so many different types of tea cakes, but I've never found that consistency or that taste. Um, so that's a longing. That's a ghost story to me. Yeah. <laughs> My sister Dina was so obsessed at one point that she did, she was doing research and, and trying to, you know, based on memory of the taste and the, the and memory of how they looked, um, trying to recreate, look at different uh, YouTube videos and, um, recipes from the internet and then put a, injecting her own you know little twist into it so she's she's done a few test batches we live far away she's in florida so I haven't tried them yet, so I can't say, but mm. she she finally made one batch that she said is kind of close. I'm gonna see her for the holidays. So I'm wow. gonna I'm gonna challenge her to try to recreate it. Wow. <laughs> I have not dared to to try, um, but it's on my list. It's on my list. Um and in terms of uh, the food and unpacking that you know I just we think back to our ancestors even before the ones that I write about in the book but those who were enslaved who were dragged from Africa um, but who brought with them the riches of their land uh, rice the knowledge of cultivating rice um, okra um, brought you know, their, the mad, that that magic little vegetable that now is such a part of our American um, culinary experience. You know, with gumbo and suka um, and and rice, <laughs> it's such a, a, a huge part of of our uh, southern dishes, and, 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 and has influenced so much of you know other American cuisines and, and other cuisines all over the world, and I, and unfortunately. Um, you know, even though our ancestors were um, exploited and used to bring you know such delight to the families that owned them, that they worked for, they were never really you know credited um, or compensated in so many cases for for that knowledge. Um, and yet, it's it's such a it's such a source of pride and such a source of um, of just a, a, such a gift to the entire world um, and I understand I wrote that thinking about how my mother makes uh, pralines or pralines or some people call it pecan candy she does actually um, but in some parts of Louisiana like New Orleans they're called pralines it's a confection with um, with uh, sugar and pecans and carnation milk condensed milk and someone had asked for her recipe and she, she refused to give it to them. Oh, no. <laughs> and it was another family member who was furious Wow! <laughs> that she wouldn't share the recipe. And so I was kind of laughing, but then I was like, I, I mean, I understand it. And then she just thought that this it was a younger relative and she thought she would just share it on social media. She was like, no, we have to hold tight, you know, the things that we have. And even though I might not necessarily agree, I understand. I understand that so many things were taken taken from um, our people. You know that they sometimes wanted to hold on to a little bit that they had, call it magic or whatever it was. But it certainly was a treasure to be able to cook um, and you know such wonderful food, um, and to not have every single thing exploited. Um, and to have some secrets that are, you know, the kind of secrets that bring a smile to your face, and I, I think that's what I was trying to get to in that um, in that passage. That I understand the the little bit of hoarding um, that that they sometimes would do. <laughs> yeah.
0: Thanks for being so generous as to share that with us.
1: <laughs> You're welcome.
0: What do you remember? Your memories of New Orleans? Do you re- do you remember New Orleans fondly? Where did you grow up within New Orleans?
1: So I actually grew up my during childhood in a town three hours west of New Orleans. I didn't move to New Orleans until I was 25. Um, it was for a newspaper job. I worked for the Times-Picayune, which was at that time the, the Metropolitan Daily newspaper there. I came. I feel like I came into my own in New Orleans. Um, it's such a, a, just such a creative place, such a mysterious place, such a Spiritual and creative place, um, the people, my neighbors, the creative writing workshop that I was a part of, um, the food, uh, the, the the accents, um, the beauty of the architecture and the houses, and and you know the oak trees, um, the moss, and so all of that fed me as a writer. It's where I started doing really the the first. Um, writing outside the news because I was, you know, I was working professionally as a newspaper reporter, but New Orleans is where I started really taking getting serious about writing outside of the newspaper stories and articles and working on my own creative work. Um, So I, I, it's one of my favorite places ever. I credit it with, you know, just the depth and soul and, and helping me take ownership of, of my own voice and my own work. And I think, there's something different about a lot of, you know, the Black, um, early Black uh, people who were in New Orleans versus other parts of the country and, and even of Louisiana. There was a certain ownership and, and fight um, that, they, that they had, and, and, and because of that, I think they were able to preserve a lot more of their history and of, and of the culture, and that's why things are so much more palpable there. Wow. Mm
0: -hmm. What advice would you give to your readers to initiate conversations with grandparents about forgotten and repressed history? What first steps should someone take to recover family history?
1: Oh my gosh, if if your elders are still alive, please take advantage of it. I regret that there are no, you know, audio recordings or video recordings of my grandparents and great grandparents. Um, so just they they want to tell their stories. You know, there might be parts of their stories that they're uh, reluctant to share. But start with what's comfortable for them. Um, people want to be listened to. Our elders want to be listened to. Um, you know, just sitting down with them and letting them talk about their past ask them you know what were they like as a child just starting in those safe places and then asking yeah. them if it's okay to record whether you're using your phone or a recorder whatever it is um, hopefully they are or they will be eventually if you make it a habit um, you know ask them if they've kept any journals that they would one day you know be willing to share if they have letters from childhood friends or their first loves um, photographs people love sharing and talking about photographs so just finding those entry points starting with food asking about you know how they learned to cook or what's their favorite thing to cook um mm-hmm. asking them about their parents and and their school you know their their school memories um there are just so many just think about your own life and um transfer that to them and yes. what, whatever it is that you want to know about them
0: what does your book and the process you went through to recover information about your grandfather and even the process of writing a memoir and a family history, what does it teach us about the relationship between fact and fiction?
1: Mm. You know, for me, starting, as a, starting my professional writing career as a journalist, where you're writing for, rec- uh, for newspapers, which are supposed to be, you know, these records of Factual information, but then learning and, and, and seeing and practice that, you know, even there we sometimes get it wrong, and how it's been proven through studies that reporters can go to the same, you know, event or accident. Um, and depending on where you're standing and what you're bringing to that situation, can write different stories and see and remember different things. Um, who who they choose to interview can, you know, none of us are unbiased. We all have some baggage. We all have some perspective that we're bringing to. And I think once I've understood that, that's when my story started coming to life instead of, Oh, just writing, you know, trying to tell the five W's and H of what happened. Um, It's okay to bring in a little bit of our, um our own perspective but then to also just to take ownership of it and, and and say and i think in some ways some of the best journalism has moved in that direction long journalism long narrative journalism long form um, where yes it's a it's a story that's based on fact and research but often you will see um the the journalists own narrative kind of woven through that and if it's done in a respectful way and it's done in a way that um, you know that says, "Hey, this is this is how I, I, I see this. This is how I feel this." But I'm going to try to tell as many sides as I can. I think that that's some of the most um, enjoyable pieces that I've read recently. Um, and when it comes to you know writing outside of, of journalism, and when you're researching, you come you hit these dead these dead ends um, because you know there's a lack of, of materials then if you wanna keep, I could have stopped. I could have stopped in my story when I realized that there were no real records of Burt Bridges. There was a point where I hired a Mississippi researcher and she found a US um, census report that we believe is the same, shows it's very, almost illegible, but there's the Burt Bridges on there. And we believe it's the same Burt Bridges, but again, it's very, you know, um, Very little information, so I could have, you know, been so and it was frustrating, but I could have been so frustrated that I stopped um, working on the project altogether. But I decided to kind of step back and use the imagination to mix the imagination and storytelling with the little pieces of fact that I have, and to just be upfront with my readers that I was doing that. And there are scholars, you know, academics. Um, who've made their life's work doing that kind of work, like Sadia um, Sadia Hartman, um, who's done a lot of scholarship in the way of um, telling the stories of enslaved people who don't have, you know, have even less records, but she finds whatever she can find and then uses the imagination and speculation to again, humanize them in some way. Taya Miles, who just won the National Book Award for her book, Um, I think it's called Ashley's, uh, it's about this woman, a sack um, that an enslaved woman owned and she, her daughter was being sold uh, and she she never got to see her daughter again, but she threw together some, you know, essential items um, and she embroidered on the sack this love note to, to that this that then was given to her daughter and that daughter gave it to her daughter and 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 so forth and so it's still in existence and so the fact that this woman you know, all of this love was woven into those those few stitches and so taya writes a book around this entire you know this one based on this one sack um using imagination using research about what else was happening around that time. And so I think that those are some interesting ways that we can weave together, you know, imagination and fact and research.
0: Thank you wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. And thank you for your generosity in both your time and in such beautiful, eloquent answers to the questions asked. Thank you
1: so much, Ari.
0: As I bring this interview to a close, what are you working on next? As your new subsequent project, and how have you spent <laughs> your time since completing this book?
1: Oh my God! So I really miss writing.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: I've been so busy um, doing interviews, um, doing uh, you know marketing around the book, doing classroom visits. Even a lot of them have been virtual. It's it's been a lot of of work. Um, just bringing a book into the world. And so for the last seven, seven to eight months, that's mostly where my extra time has been spent, doing interviews, doing class visits, uh, writing articles about you know about the book, um, but I'm eager now to get back to writing. I think things are, will start to slow down as we're getting to the, towards the end of the year, the beginning of the next year. I have a few different um, ideas that I've taken some notes on, written a, just a few pages, nothing that's like really solid. Um, but there is, I think, uh, part of the story, uh, a branch, kind of a branch off from Bridges That's on my grandmother's side, my maternal grandmother, my mother's mother. Um, And it's about how these women knew the land. And, you know, they knew and understood different herbs and roots. And some of that got, a lot of that got buried, um, unfortunately, uh, over the years. But I remember specifically this bottle of amber liquid with these thick roots that my grandmother used to keep in a cabinet in the kitchen and I never really knew what it was but it was always there and I've talked to my mother about it and it was called snake root and she and her mother-in-law grandma Mary you know knew how to go into the woods and dig up the these roots and use them for different ailments so I think this the project that I'm fascinated by is you know doing research tracing trying to find out what these women knew, why was it lost, how was it ridiculed, and how, how can we get back our connection to the earth and land um, and, and, you know, and to healing.
0: Thank you. Thank You're you.
1: You're so welcome.
0: Thank you for your time. Um, I'm honored to have read an extraordinary book written by an extraordinary person.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ari. I'm so honored to be here. Thank, Thank you. For you. Your great questions. Very, very
0: deep. Thank you. Uh, as we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'm Ari Barbalat with the New Books Network, having interviewed today Cassandra Lane. She is the author of We Are Bridges, a memoir published in New York by Feminist Press 2021. This is the New Books in African American Studies podcast. Thank you.